You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. So we are looking at the third commandment. <clears throat> We've looked at the preface, which undergirds the entire Decalogue as part of the covenant of grace. Um, God introduces himself there on Mount Sinai as a God who delivered his people out of Egyptian bondage, and he does the same thing with all of his people as he delivers us from our spiritual thraldom. So that was the preface. He introduces this with grace, and the only way we could keep this law is through Jesus Christ. He's the one who kept it, not us. But in Christ, this helps us as a guide for Christian living. So we looked at the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. We looked at the second commandment, thou shalt not make any graven images. And now we're looking at the third commandment. 53, question 53. Bill, if you have your book, it's question 53 if you want to follow along. Our guest, Bill Valentine, is there. Which is the third commandment? The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. So we looked at the first commandment, as I said, identifies the right object of worship. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the positive implication of that is you shall have the Lord God before you, or before him, in his presence, before his face, literally. So no other gods. We are obligated as human beings to worship the true God, and we're especially obligated as Christians to worship the triune God. The second commandment deals with using the right means of worship. No graven images, no likenesses of anything above, on earth, beneath. You shall not bow down yourself to them or serve them, which means you shall not rely upon them. We don't need anything to worship God other than what he's given to us. So the object and the means, and then the third commandment has to do with the right manner or the right spirit of worship. Don't abuse his name. So what's interesting is that to worship the triune God or the true God with the appointed means in a wrong spirit or with a wrong demeanor or disposition is to worship him in vain. It's empty. It's worthless. The Jews, of course, worship the wrong object. They get the first commandment wrong because they don't believe in and worship the triune God. So they're off the charts right off the bat. They don't even get the first commandment right. The Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox worship the right object. They worship the triune God. They confess the Apostles' Creed with us. They affirm God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But they use unlawful means by employing various images and other means not appointed in God's word. So they keep the first, but they break the second. Their worship is in vain. Oftentimes, Protestants will worship the right object, the triune God. They'll use the right means, those appointed by his word, but they will do so with a wrong spirit so that their worship is in vain. 
Any one of these areas is enough to disqualify the worship that's offered. It's not acceptable. Acceptable worship is with the right, the right object, with the right means, with the right spirit. So, when Protestants do this, they take God's name in vain because they don't approach him with a sincere and filial reverence. And that's what's required of those who worship God in the right way. Third commandment, taking his name in the right way, not in vain. Now, we don't teach this. The Jews do teach the wrong object. The Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox do teach the wrong means. Protestants don't teach a wrong spirit. But oftentimes, we assume that because we have the right object and because we have the right means, that we're doing everything okay. We have to come before God with the right spirit. This people, Jesus says, honors me with their lips, the right way, right means, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And that word vain is empty, worthless, powerless, futile. In vain. You can worship all you want, and it makes no difference. It doesn't do anything because it's not in the right way. Any questions on this 53rd question? The right manner of worship. Jim? Can you give some examples of of how this is accomplished in the wrong way? Sure. Pharisees. Right object at that time, right object. Definitely the right means. They were strict, writing according to Scripture. They were orthodox. They were perhaps the most orthodox worshipers in the region. However, they came with the wrong spirit. They worshiped with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They trusted in the lawful means. Search the scriptures, because in them they point to me, but you think in them you have eternal life, Jesus said. They trusted in the lawful means. They didn't have unlawful means, which would have been a sin. So trusting in the outward acts of worship, trusting in the Bible itself, you know, there can be such a thing as bibliolatry. You can idolize the Bible. Uh, That's not right. The Bible is an instrument that reveals Christ. And so we look at the Christ to which the Bible points. We trust in him, not in the Bible itself. As we'll find this morning, it's a dead letter without the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, there's one way that a Protestant could violate the third commandment by coming into church every Sunday, doing everything that's said to be done, and have his thoughts wandering and not even thinking about what he's doing. I find this, I'm convicted because a lot of times I'll be singing, and I love singing, and I will, I'll think more about the tune and the melody than the words. So I'm... All of a sudden, I'm thinking to myself, what did I just sing? Because the melody has so gripped me, you know. That's in vain. Uh, Rob? Is that mean you're a Pharisee? Uh, <laughs> oftentimes, yes. But I, I feel the same way, too. Yeah. I'm singing, and I, I'm, I can find myself thinking about something else. Yeah. Wandering thoughts, both in singing and prayers and the preaching. I mean, wandering thoughts is a very difficult thing for us to battle against. We all battle it, right? It's, it's really hard. And that's one of the reasons why I say it's much, much more difficult to be a hearer in worship than a preacher. I've got my notes. I know where I'm going. I can just preach. Anybody can preach. It's very difficult to hear 
conscientiously because you have to keep your thoughts focused and that's not an easy thing to do. You know, the Jesus in his parable of the four soils, uh, the seed is sown and the birds come and just snatch it away. Anything can distract us. You know, the sirens that go by all the time. Oh, what's going on out there, you know? And I didn't hear what was just said. Uh, Rihanna? If it's based upon scripture, I wouldn't say it's in vain because as a sincere believer, and I did the same thing as a very young believer, you know, I sang these songs, which are kind of like little ditties, um, but the Lord is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. So he accepts the sincerity. Yeah. So in the right spirit, you're coming to worship the Lord. Um, and again, the depth of the song, he's not going to damn you to hell for the lack of depth in the song. If it honors the Lord Jesus, he'll accept your worship. But as we grow in maturity, we understand. Yeah, the hymns that are Trinitarian are far more theologically rich than the little ditty that I sang the other day that just kind of repeats the same thing over and over again. So, anybody else before we move on? Okay. Okay, the duties required. What is required in the third commandment? Well, the third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. <laughs> it's comprehensive. <clears throat> you know, oftentimes we look at this commandment and we think, well, I just got to keep the name God. I got to make sure that I treat the name God with reverence, which is true. But it's not just the name, it's everything associated with his name, as we'll see. And it answers the question, in what frame of spirit must God's worship be rendered? Public worship, formal worship, Romans 12, all of life is worship. It's not the same kind of worship. The worship we offer on the Lord's Day as a corporate whole, the covenant community, that's special. But we do have this sense in Romans 12 that our lives are lived out as worship to God. So in what frame of spirit must God's worship be rendered? From the heart, we honor, cherish, and exalt the triune name. Our whole lives and our public worship in particular should be done in that manner. It requires that we use the name of God with the utmost filial affection and reverence. Fear the Lord. Not in servile, not servile fear. Not like a slave fearing his master. But like a child fearing his or her father. With reverence, respect. We honor the name of the Lord in all of its various expressions. Jesus even taught us to pray. Pray then like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, may your name be respected, honored, and revered in all places by all people at all times. 
May you take away all ignorance and profaneness and idolatry and atheism. By the name of God, of course, is meant everything by which he's pleased to make himself known. And you can see why, how comprehensive that is. The name of God involves far more than simply the proper names and the titles that are used in Scripture, although it does include those. His names set forth what God is in and of himself, while his titles set forth what he is to others. So we have his names, it's who he is, his titles, what he does, what he provides. He reveals himself by names like God, Almighty, Yahweh, Lord, by titles like provider and fortress and refuge and so forth. So you can see that these are to be revered. He makes himself known by his word and his works, creation. Again, I've told this story before. It's kind of, it, it's a small, significant, insignificant detail, but I used to say all the time, rats. You know, I'd get frustrated. Ah, oh, rats. Well, as I studied this commandment, I realized God made the rats. I can't do that. It's wrong. <laughs> I mean, I don't like rats, but he made them for whatever reason. And I have to try to root that out of my vocabulary, which I tried. Um, I hopefully don't say it in front of you. If I do, rebuke me. That's wrong. Laura? Well, people say, you know, I have done this. Holy cow. He made cows. He, well, and no cow is holy. Right. So these are things we have to reach for. Oh, my goodness. Right? Only God is good. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Why do we say gosh? What is gosh? I don't even know what gosh is. It's a word for God. It's a superstitious practice. It's saying, oh, my God, without actually saying the word, but, of course, the spirit is, oh, my God. John? Then, an exclamation of... A various emotions of exclamation. Should we not make the exclamation, or what is an appropriate way to actually do this? That's a good question. Uh, wow, my, you know, that's what I've got to. My word, not, even word is probably not a good thing, but <laughs> it's it's a very difficult thing. I mean, you can express, you know, the desire to vent something, but again, we should be self-controlled, which I have a problem with. But we need to be self-controlled. And so this teaches us how to control ourselves and particularly our tongue. Such a huge fire can be started with such a small little instrument, you know. Our thoughts, our words, our writing. Like a painter or a sculptor whose name goes with the piece of art, so God's name goes with his works. Creation, everything in creation, he's made. Providence, history, murmuring and quarreling against his providence like Israel did in the wilderness. It's violating the third commandment. Complaining about the things that God brings into our lives. Violation of the third commandment. Redemption especially, and you can see that. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's just one text which shows that his creation is associated with his name, his glory. And we're to treat it with reverence and respect. So there you have. Um, we are to be good environmentalists. There's nothing wrong with that. We're stewards of the creation God has made, and that's important. Now, we don't have to go overboard. But we are to be good environmentalists. 
It presupposes our duty to mention and revere the name of God. Positively, we are to use God's name. We are to revere God's name. We not only study and appreciate his works, but we also profess the true faith. Every human being is obliged to profess faith in this triune God. And if we don't, then we are under the curse and our doom is sealed. So we profess the triune God. And especially when we stand up front in the public worship and somebody professes their faith for the first time or for the third time or whatever, they are fulfilling the third commandment. Every time we take the supper, we profess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're fulfilling our duty of the third commandment. It would be a grave and serious insult to neglect so great a privilege as to confess the name of the triune God. We are named by the triune God. We bear his name as Christians. Many do it practically by refusing to worship or to serve or to obey or to grow, to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to mature in the Lord, to deal with the things he brings in his overruling providence in a very Christian way. And we're all convicted by that. It's difficult. But God brings these things into our lives to test and train us and to strengthen us. And so we always treat his self-revelation with a sober, serious, and respectful attitude. That doesn't mean you have to walk around with a frown on your face. That's not what that means. It simply means that this is a serious thing. It's a privilege. And he deserves honor. He loves joy. He loves godly mirth. There's nothing wrong with that. Look at the celebrations in the Old Testament, but he also expects us to use his name properly. All throughout history of redemption, God's people have called upon his great name. Let me give you a series of texts real quick. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 4. Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. You remember that? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, says the psalmist. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. And then finally, for everyone, Paul says, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we're doing. Rusan? So does that phrase mean, or would it be right to understand it meaning that we interact with God consistently with his revealed character? To call upon his name means to worship him in words, sacraments, and prayers, public and private. So yes, we interact with God and his character, uh, who he is, our relationship with him through Christ. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good question. It's the the right question to ask. So, calling upon his name. He exalts his name above all things. And his great name will be honored. And his glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. As the sea covers the earth. Something like that. You get my, my point. Everything associated must be revered and sanctified, whether nature or grace. His works are designed to reveal his glory. Rats reveal his glory. I don't know how, but they do. He's the author of life. All life 
Mosquitoes. <laughs> Aren't they the result of the fall? I mean, they have to be something. I, I don't get it, but they do reveal his glory. And I guess they're food. I'm not a, a biologist or a botanist or anything, but I guess they're food for many animals. So that's probably part of the ecological system. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. They're clear, plain, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. It just shows that... He's revealed himself in these things. He is a self-revealing God. And if he hadn't revealed himself, we never would have known him. He's hidden. He's beyond our comprehension. He must reveal himself in both thought, speech, behavior. We are called to treat his great and awesome name with respect. That is the, the point, the thrust of the third commandment. In all of our approaches to him, whether that be formal or informal, as Ruthann was saying, we do so with, again, filial reverence and awe. When we go to prayer, for example, our prayers can be familiar. They can be intimate. There's nothing wrong with that. However, they also need to be tinged, laced, characterized by reverence. You're coming before an infinite and eternal God who is filled with majesty. How do you approach the infinite God who's going to have you judged at the end of time? Not that you need to fear if you're a Christian. That's going to be a wonderful thing. The judgment is going to be vindication because you're in Christ. It'll be a joyful thing, but still he is the ultimate judge. He sits upon his great white throne and heaven and earth flee from before him. And yet we're coming before him to offer prayers, desires, petitions. The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. We revere his name when we publicly profess his, our faith in him and a daily walk that is consistent with it. Again, you can profess the faith, and if your life doesn't coincide with that profession, it is a violation, among other things, of the third commandment. You're profaning the name. Remember in Isaiah? Uh, no, it's Ezekiel 36. He says, it's not on your account, Israel, that I'm about to act, but it's because you've profaned my name among the nations. Therefore, I'm going to send my spirit. He's going to take out that stony heart, and he's going to give you a living, fleshly heart so that you can keep my commandments, so that my great name is no longer profaned among the nations. It's because of his great name. Their walk was inconsistent with their profession, and the nations were, um, his name was profaned among the nations. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. He has commanded us to believe in Christ, and that belief is expressed in part by a public profession of faith. So these young people, we don't badger them, we don't berate them, we don't push them, but we gently encourage them. Hey, you're a covenant child. This is your privilege. You need to grow up and profess this faith. Don't push. 
don't badger, don't nag them. But we do gently encourage, because this is a privilege, and it is a duty to profess his name. We're to do this for God's glory and our good, because only true Christians are able to perform it. The the non-Christian cannot fulfill the third commandment. The non-Christian has no faith, and whatever is not of faith is sin. You must be born again if you are to fulfill in any part or any way the third commandment. An unbeliever with training may avoid profane swearing, but he will harbor no true reverence. You know, you can be brought up in a Christian family and you can have excellent training, loving parents, education, admonition, and you can avoid that profane swearing. You can be eloquent and refined, a good citizen and so forth. But if you're not born again, if the Spirit doesn't live within your heart, there is no true reverence for God within you. And you're not a believer. And you do not keep the third commandment. Any questions on the duties, Rob? This might be an absurd question, but can I kill a spider regularly? Yes. You can. If, he, if he's invading your domain, and this is how I've come to understand it, if he's invading your domain, squash it like a bug. <laughs> but if he's out in his own domain, God uses spiders. They're good for the, the creation. Okay. I hate spiders. Uh, a mouse trouble? Yeah, so I, I might... My son is really sensitive to that. Yes. And when he saw I killed a spider, it was just like, it broke his heart. Yes. I'm just wondering how to explain. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Hard to explain to a young one who's very sensitive. Perhaps make, uh, have Haley call him in the other room and you want to squash him. Something like that. (laughs) If he's in my house, he's a dead bug. Yeah, he's invading my domain. Sin's forbidden. Oh, I'm sorry, John. Would this be a... I'm trying to think of a way to get it in my mind. Um, I could think of this. Like, if you wash a pot in vain, it's still dirty at the end. There's a... If I take the name of the Lord, there would be a expected end of that taking the name of the Lord. The first part of that would be the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so by saying, take the name of the Lord in vain, it would be like saying, it sounds like saying, fear the Lord. It's, I watch the pot, the pot's clean. I take the name of the Lord. I fear him. I take the name of the Lord. I'm affected by that. I'm properly affected by the action of worship in, the, in my spirit, in my whole being. Well, absolutely. If I understand what you're saying, <clears throat> worship will always affect us. It'll shape us. Which, again, is why it's so important to do the right things in worship, because it does shape us. But you have to approach it from the front end with the right spirit, which is what I think you're saying. Um, You can't enter into it and trust in the means to do all the heavy lifting for you. You have to come to the means of worship and give to it your spirit, your faith, your reverence. You know what I'm saying? So what happens is this kind of reverberation. You're coming to it with faith. You're entering into these means of grace, and they're shaping you and helping you grow in faith and reverence. So it is kind of a, uh, a circular thing, but you have to begin with the fear of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be happy. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. 
If you're, in, if you're in pain, if you're suffering, it's difficult to be happy and come to worship. But if you're sorrowful, if you're bereaved, if you're in pain and you come to worship and you enter in saying, Lord, I don't feel like doing this, but I'm doing this for your, good, your glory and my good, that's faith. And hopefully some of the things that we do and say in worship will apply because it's not all about being happy and clappy. It's about ascribing worth to the great name of the triune God. I take the pot and I put it in a big thing of Tupperware, and I put it in the dishwasher. I can go through the dishwasher and I come on clean. If I if I go through the actions but don't let it affect me, then I then I and I and I don't and I don't begin I don't get to the reverence and awe in this. If I don't get to if I don't recognize God as God, then I'm taking His name in vain. I'm right. Doing the actions, I'm doing the work of being Christian, but it's not changing. Me. Right. It's not. There's no faith. I'm trying to understand it, how it's distinct from how I can get it in vain and see the reverence and awe. The connection between vain and reverence and awe. Well, the vein is the character of the worship that you render. So if you're rendering this worship simply based on externals, it's vain. It's worthless. It's not really worshiping the Lord. Even though you've done everything right externally. You've gone through all the motions of worship. If your heart is not engaged, uh, it's vain. That's what it's getting at, really. It's just the right spirit, the right manner, the disposition that you're coming into this, right? Throughout the wilderness wanderings, the Israelites worshipped, but they grumbled and complained. They had a wrong spirit, and it was vain. Was there another, Melissa? Right. Right. Yeah. What she's saying is it's comprehensive of all of our lives because we bear the name of God. So if our lives are inconsistent with what we profess, then we're violating the third commandment. And all of us do this every single day. We can't keep this command. So thankfully, Jesus did. That's the need for the act of obedience of Christ. Um. What is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbids all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. So it forbids the not using of God's name as is required. Treat it respectfully. We don't abuse it in an ignorant, vain, irreverent, or profane way. Let's look at those four. The natural man is ignorant of God's self-revelation because he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. There's ignorance. It's willful ignorance. God has made himself known. In the creation, in providence, in his word, which is public, he's made himself known, and to be ignorant of God's self-revelation is sinful. It arises from the unbeliever's sin-darkened mind and sin-perverted heart. He's without excuse. Everywhere he looks, he sees evidence of God's glory and the majesty of his name. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The natural man often uses the name of God in vain or in a trivial, empty, meaningless manner. We see this all the time. On every sitcom you can turn on the TV, you'll see it. 
Somebody says, oh my God, I didn't mean anything by it. It's just something I said. But that's precisely what the third commandment is forbidding. You can't excuse a sin by practicing it. You can't keep the command by breaking it. Oh, I didn't mean anything by saying the name of God. I didn't mean anything when I said Jesus Christ. Well, that's exactly what the third commandment is forbidding. Using it in a meaningless, trivial manner. And I'm I'm amazed. I just see these shows, for example, even movies. When they get frustrated, what do they say? Jesus Christ. Why? Why is it that name that they use profanely? Because that's the natural man in enmity with God. The natural man often uses God's name irreverently, without some type of oath, without substance. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, the earth, Jerusalem, your head. See, what happened was the Pharisees would typically say, if you used God's name in an oath, you've got to keep it. But if you use any of these other lesser things, there's some wriggle room. You don't have to be quite as rigid in keeping your oath. And Jesus is saying, are you kidding? That profanes the name of God. You make an oath. If you give your word, you keep your word. That honors the name of God. Keeping of lawful promises. My grandfather always said, a man is only as good as his word. And he's right. The natural man often uses God's name profanely, or it's a blasphemous curse word. Again, the name of Jesus, the greatest name, the name above all names. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Any questions on some of those sins forbidden? It is comprehensive. We are, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Jonathan? Uh, go back to the issue of... Um superstitions, would this kind of apply even to saying things like bless you? Because I, I think, like with the kids, I read it's always cute to hear them say bless you when someone sneezes, but then I also don't want them to think that the, what happens in a benediction is just a mere trivial blessing. Precisely. Blessing is actually something that comes from God alone. Precisely. People think I'm rude because I stopped saying it. It, it began because they thought that when you sneezed, your soul was going out of your body, and so they said, oh, bless you. It's, it's trivial. So, I mean, at the risk of our church being perceived as rude, I think we should stop saying it. I have. I try to. Allison? What about um, non-believers or even believers using it flippantly like, oh, God works in mysterious ways. You know, you hear people yep. you know aren't really walking or, you know, believe in the trying God, but they'll talk about God. Yeah, they're using the true statement in a vain way. There's no substance behind it. There's no real faith that God does in his overruling providence direct and dispose all things to his glory and our good. Yeah, and we do that. I'll pray for you. (laughs) I never think about it, and that's vain. Yeah, we're using these things that that reveal God in a vain way. I tell you, says Jesus, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For, he says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Somebody says, but wait a minute, I thought as Protestants we believe that we're justified by faith. 
That's true. Faith, though, is proved by good words. Works, words, same thing. Here's our chart. I get this from Gerstner. Faith leads to justification plus good words. That's the Protestant understanding. Faith, saving faith, we're justified and expresses itself in good words. Now, if there are no good words, if there's just bad words, if we're breaking the third commandment, then, whoops, there's no good words. There's no evidence, right? And if there's no evidence, then faith is not genuine. If faith is not genuine, there is no true justification. So, faith is proved by good works, you'll be justified by your words, and you'll be condemned by your words. The evidence will be amassed and assembled and displayed at the day of judgment, and God will either justify or condemn. Now, I don't think as Christians we need to be fearful or worried, but concerned. This is an important thing, and your words will be used at the final day. And the words that we speak that are careless or profane, these, if we're Christians, true Christians, will be used to glorify the grace of the Lord God. Look at Alex, the vain, irreverent word he just spoke, and yet he is welcomed into heaven, and the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover that heinous blasphemy, right? That honors the Lord Jesus, will rejoice with him. It's not a matter of concern for the Christian, for the unchristian, for the non-believer, It's a matter of terror, or it should be. So words, whether good or bad, careless or conscientious, will either justify or condemn. They'll provide solid evidence for what filled our hearts and in what relation we stood to Jesus. If you have the habit of good words, if 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 your life is characterized by professing the name of Christ and living sincerely with that profession, then it shows what filled your heart. You were a Christian. You loved the Lord. John? If you're going to question, um, if we're talking with somebody and they're using kind of God's promises, oh, look, I'll take care of it, but we know that they're, we have knowledge that they're not actually believing that or that they're just, they're using words. Um, or even that they're, they're wanting kind of some affirmations from us, like just kind of affirmation in the normal conversation, what's an appropriate response? Well, it depends on the circumstances. I mean, you have to take him at his word. Unless he's living in blatant sin or he's doing something sinful right in front of you, you take him at his word. I'll pray for you or God works all things, you know. Um, But if you think, okay, this is a rank unbeliever and his speech is filled with profaneness and vulgarity, right? And then he comes out with, well, God will work it all out. Then you might winsomely say, well, you know what? Um, God works things together for good for those who love him and are called by his purpose, right? I don't know. I mean, every circumstance is different, so you have to use wisdom and discernment to know how to approach that. But oftentimes, if you're just talking to a stranger, you have to take him at his word. You can't see his heart. Rob? You can pull that thing down if you want to. I like the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I have family members that are 
teachers that like don't treat me well or my wife well? Do we have like the right to say that they're not believers or um, No, don't say they're not believers, but tell them to treat you treat you well. Yeah. I mean they're human beings. And the moral law requires that as human beings, they treat you with respect. But they, they profess to be Christians, so it's like, I, I don't know, I wrestle with how they treat Haley sometimes, and it's like, well, you, know, you really need to read the Bible because you're not doing, you're not, I don't see the good works. Don't, don't judge their heart. Okay. You, you can't see their heart. Maybe they're just rough and raw around the edges and they haven't learned how to treat one another yet. But what you can do is address the sin. Hey, this is my wife. Don't treat my wife like that. Okay? Because if you treat her like that, you're treating me like that. We're one flesh. Yeah. It gets even more if it's her parents. Can I do that too? Absolutely. She's yours now, not theirs, right? But again, use discernment. I mean, this is, these are her parents, and you don't want to, you want to be delicate in how you deal with that. This is a close relationship, and you want to have Christmas together and, you know, maybe have dinner with them once in a while. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Am I, am I skipping someone? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. From within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander. The list goes on. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So the words express the nature of the heart. And that's one thing you can say, maybe, if you feel comfortable enough, if you're close enough to this person, as John was saying, maybe you can say, hey, I heard what you just said. Brother, you're a good friend of mine, but just so you know, your words express what's in your heart. And you need to be careful or think about that. Jesus is saying that any words will be used as evidence for our justification or condemnation. It's true especially of the way in which we use God's name or treat anything contained under his name. His titles, Attributes, words, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, works, all of it. As Melissa said, the whole of life. Um, I have some uh, things here. These are actual things that are forbidden. They're just a list. Superstitious mentioning, violating oaths, murmuring, misinterpreting the word, profane jokes. Curious or unprofitable questions. There are such a thing as stupid questions. False doctrines, abusing his name, uh, maligning, scorning, reviling, opposing his truth, grace, or ways. So all these things. And of course, the writer of Proverbs doesn't want riches or poverty because it doesn't want to profane the name of God. The reason, because... The breakers of this commandment may escape the punishments of men, but the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. Officials, high officials, usually are insulted when their names are abused, and they impose, if they can, heavy penalties. It's also, especially with respect to God, it's a punishable crime. It's, the reason given is a meiosis, according to Thomas Watson, which simply means that while less is said, more is intended. That's a meiosis. In other words, the Lord will hold him guiltless. It's kind of a benign way to say he is going to severely punish the breakers of this commandment. That's what it means. It's severe. 
It's an incentive to not to say anything that brings reproach upon God or takes his name in vain. I can't imagine the day of judgment when those who use the name of Jesus Christ in vain will have to answer for their iniquity. How many times did I do that as an unbeliever and as a new believer? It's such a habit. I was in, I was in seminary. We were at a pub with all of our theological friends having a beer together, talking theology. And at one point, because this was in my household, I said something like, oh, for Christ's sake. And as soon as it went out of my mouth, I was like totally embarrassed. These are my seminary friends. And I just used the name of Christ in vain. And I was so mortified. Uh, I still remember it almost 30, 35 years later. It was awful. But it was a good reminder. God used that to convict me. God will punish with temporal or spiritual judgments, either in this life or the life to come. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, anyway. John, real quick. Um, I just thought, would these two examples in Scripture be same name or vain? One of them would be, you Pharisees wash the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of... Absolutely. You are doing the outside works, but the inside is not clean. Absolutely. Uh, I think Paul warns Timothy that they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So you are doing godly things for other motives. Absolutely. Doing godly things for financial gain. Good examples. Yeah, very good. Both of those. His name in vain. There's not as much using the same words, but the actions we do and by it, what our motivation Totally inconsistent with a profession of faith in Christ. Absolutely. Yeah, good examples. So, the third commandment, very important. That's all we have. Let me ask Sam if he wants to give an announcement real quick, and then we'll close in prayer. Um, Just a friendly reminder, Hearts of the Harvest is this Saturday evening, beginning at 5.30. There is still time to sign up. Please sign up. Please consider coming. Um, It's a great time of fellowship and and get an opportunity to eat and and join together and raise some money for uh, both the missionaries that we support as a church as well as uh, to to save up money for future missions trips that we take as a congregation. Um, Normally, uh, this would be about the time that we've been talking about uh, going on a missions trip this summer. We're actually holding off on that this year. There's some changes going on in Cherokee, so the missions team uh, committee is reassessing what we're going to be doing into 2024. So, um, But still an opportunity to um, put some money away and help support the mission missionaries that we uh, support as a congregation. Is also to hear from um, some of our local uh, missionaries, either the missionaries that we support or uh, local organizations this year. Um, our friends at Young Life are going to be um, talking to us about what they do here locally um, in our community and in, in Northeast Ohio. So please do come and um, hear about that as well. Um, and then also, second announcement, bonus announcement, to help make sure that you're nice and hungry for the Hearts of the Harvest. We do have a move planned for one of the members of the congregation on Saturday morning. So if you want to come and build up uh, some good uh, uh, appetite, please consider coming to that and let me know if you're available. So Outstanding. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, Hearts for Harvest Saturday evening, and then 5.30, and then the move Saturday morning. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can take your name upon our lips, and we pray that your Spirit will help us to engage our hearts when we do so. 
We're grateful for the privilege of ascribing worth to your great name in worship, and we ask that you'll prepare us now for that great privilege. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.